listening to The Local Bar Podcast with your host, Chad Alexander. Come on in. We have a lot of friends we want you to meet. Well, hello, my babies. From beautiful downtown Columbia, South Carolina, located right in the heart of Rosewood, this is The Local Bar. I'm your host, Chad Alexander, and of all the places you can be, you've decided to spend some time with us today. For that, we're incredibly grateful. How you doing? Local Bar can be found on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify. Spotify has done something weird. If you listen to us on Spotify, they've gone back and taken away like half the shows. I don't know what's going on. Give me a week. I hope I'll get to the bottom of it. Sorry about that. But for all of you that are here, thank you for being here. Part of the Libsyn Network, you can find us uh, over there on Libsyn if you're one of those folks. If you have uh, a, a smart, one of those uh, like Russian spygate things in your house, uh, just to let you know, you can always say, hey Alexa, play the latest episode of The Local Bar on iHeart, and it'll start playing this too. Just a, just a little thing. Don't know if you know it or not. Just thought I'd pass that along. I want to uh, throw a couple of shout-outs at the beginning of the show. Uh, number one, over there, to the boys at Riot House Podcast. I was on with them uh, this past weekend. We had a good time. It's, it's always fun to get to get along and uh, sit down with those cats. Uh, they're, they're really funny guys. If you want to hear, it's a, it's a fun show, and they, they do an excellent job. They've had a, a great variety of guests. If you haven't checked out Riot House Podcast, that's R-I-O-T, Right House Podcast. Go go give them a, a, a shout. Uh, check them out. Uh, if you want something fun, really get into to checking out some uh, some folks, especially if you're in the, the South Carolina area. Uh, they really do a great job of some of their interviews, and it was a lot of fun. It was it was ridiculous. Um, I'd been I'd been day drinking with my wife and our friends Ace and Jamie. So if you listen to it, that's the that's what I'm going to blame it on. I also want to throw a couple of things out there at the top of the show. Uh, as far as I know, as far as I know, because I don't know how things are going to go with this whole coronavirus thing, as far as I know, this coming weekend in uh, in Park Circle, down there in the, uh, in the Charleston, South Carolina, March 14th, we will be down there. Uh, Don is going to be doing a, 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 a little show at the Park Circle St. Patrick's Day block party. He's going to be there. And Jason and I from the Blacksmiths are going to be joining him. As long as nothing changes, we will be there playing four to six on the stage. Come on out. Come see us. It'll be a good time. It'll be kind of like old times, just not with the other half of the band. But uh, we, we've done one gig before at a brewery, uh, Jason, Don, and I did. And I and I had an absolute blast with it. It was a lot of fun. So if you're out in the Charleston, South Carolina area, want to hear some good music, come check out, come check us out. That 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 is one of my favorite festivals uh, in the state. It's a really good one. So come check that out. Uh, I have heard... I don't know that this is absolutely 100% true, but I've heard that the St. Patrick's Day Festival in Columbia, South Carolina has been called off. Um, Don't know if that's 100% true or not. So I don't know if this is affected by it. But on the 20th, the Friday night before that, uh, over here at Foxfield, 
Bar and Grill is the best outdoor venue in all of South Carolina for going and checking out local music. Uh, Don is going to be opening for our friends Cottontown Soul Society. Uh, they are a great band. They've got so much talent on that stage when they play. A lot of fun. Um, our buddy Ace is uh, one of the headliners of that band. He's got some some new tricks and some new toys. He's going to pull out there on stage that you got to come and check out. Uh, I think Shelly and he have written some new songs. It sounds like there's you know they, they, there's so much energy, so much fun. Don uh, played with them when they um, did the uh, the the new year's thing with salt and pepper this year and uh is a great show from what i heard some of us have kids and couldn't get out but if you are going to be around and want to check that out uh just put that in your calendar as long as long as we're still having it which brings me to my show today i uh You know, there's 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 times every now and then when I say we need to have a talk. This is one of those times. And I am going, you know, I, I have been away for a couple of weeks. Uh, I we, we had a family vacation. Um, and then I, I took last week off to get reacclimated back to work. But also, I wanted to wait. It's It's almost like me following that 48-hour rule. If you're new to the show. There's a rule that I have. If there's ever a big shindig that happens, whether it's in the media, just in our society, whether it's a big event, I always say you should wait 48 hours before you go post it on social media or go run in your mouth about it. And the, and the reason why is twofold. Number one, you, you never know. All the information may not be in front of you. Number two, we generally go off of emotions, and what that has shown us in the past historically is that we usually jump to some bad conclusions. So I've been thinking a lot and trying to kind of wrap my head around a few things. And um, in doing so, I, I think I'm ready to share something with all of you tonight. I want, to, I want to tell you a couple of stories. The uh, Tonight's just me, by the way. Tonight's just me. No no guests this week, just me. Just me and you. The way Venus Flytrap would have it. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I had started playing piano. I, I had um, I had never taken uh, uh, lessons in a musical instrument ever before. Uh, I was in uh, first, second grade. And uh, we lived in the big city of Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, where I was today, ironically enough. Kind of neat. Be back up that way. See some folks up there. Um, I, I used to have to hop the fence, and my piano teacher lived directly behind us. Uh, she was an organist at our church, Bonnie Davis, one of the uh, giants in my life as, as a child, someone who, uh, held, uh, who still holds uh, a very high place in my life for someone who is very influential to me. Growing up, and 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 I uh, I remember learning how to play the piano, and I remember it being very very strange. You know, when you, when you sit down to learn how to play the piano, a lot of you that have tried before, you, you may have tried different instruments. But what's funny about the piano is um, there, there's 88 of them buttons in front of you, not three or four or five or 20. There's 88 of them, 
And both of your hands are doing separate things at the same time. And it, it's just, it's a very weird thing. And it takes, it, I say all the time, it takes three years of practice before you really start getting the hang of it. Most people I know took piano for two to three years and then they gave up. And I tell them all the time, just a little bit longer you would have had it. Um, I, I enjoyed learning to play, but it was very challenging for me. At that time, uh, I was young, a little thinner. Uh, things came kind of easy to me. I played soccer play basketball um just church league stuff but uh it it, it kind of came easy uh softball t-ball but the piano was hard it, it was it was very difficult and it was something that i i didn't really didn't really get my mind around and, and there wasn't a lot for me to to look at there was no youtube back in the day there wasn't even cable television back in the day i'd listened to a lot of records and eight tracks but I could I could hear things, but I I couldn't mimic it on the piano yet. It, it was very hard. It was it was very difficult. That and that came years later. So th- what I had in front of me were theory books, and a very patient piano teacher. After playing for a few months, um, she informed me of something that comes with uh, teaching piano. That your parents are going to want to know uh, what their money has been going to. And suddenly you find yourself doing this one thing that you learn to fear. And it's called a recital. Where the teacher gets all of her students together, usually in some church or something like that. And invites all the parents in and they have programs printed. And they sit down and every child gets up and performs and this was something i absolutely did not want to do now that that sounds strange to some folks seeing that um i perform all the time but but at at this point in my life that was something i had no desire to do and and i can still very easily explain it my focus at the time was wanting to learn how to play the piano I didn't want to do anything else but sit with Bonnie and then practice at home and learn to play the piano. I couldn't play cool songs yet. I'm playing like kind of like little, little, you know, stupid little things that that you have to play when you're you're, you're you know you gotta you gotta learn to you gotta crawl before you walk, right? So I I wasn't down with this. As a matter of fact, this was something that in my rationale at that time. This was something that should happen about five years down the road. We're not there yet. But no, Bonnie said we were. So, we were. I remember the piece she she wanted me to play. It was in a green book. It's a it's a it's a very common book. I can't remember the, the time, but if, if if a lot of you grew up eighties and nineties, you probably saw this series of books. All of your teachers probably had them, not just for piano, but for a lot of folks that were learning to play an instrument at that time. And um, it was a green one, and I remember the name of the song was "When the Band Goes Marching By." Now I, I knew I had two or three weeks or so to get ready. To, to play this song in, in, in front of folks. And I didn't know how I was going to do. I mean, I, even when I practiced at home, we live in a two-story house and uh, in the mountains. And our second story was really just like uh, just a couple of rooms down there, like one big room. 
and in a in a in a garage and in 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 the house garage. And so we basically lived upstairs. My dad's office was downstairs. A guest bedroom was downstairs in a big room with an old black and white TV uh, in the fireplace. So it was like the, it was like we went during winter. The piano was down there, which was great because everybody else could live upstairs. You could go downstairs and practice the piano without ever bothering anybody or having people bother you. And so in my mind, that was a soundproof area down there. I'm sure it wasn't, but but that that's the way I, I thought of it. And I, and I believe that. And, and that's how I went about my practice. And, and I was down there and I was practicing my butt off, trying my best to learn when the band goes marching by. Song takes about 20 to 25 seconds to play. In learning to play it, I started getting comfortable after the first week of practice. Went and talked to Bonnie, and she said, God, we might have to have you play a second song. You, you've got that one down. No, no, Bonnie. Let's stick with what we got. Okay. And as, a, as, as at home, I started, like, trying to play around with it a little bit more, adding a couple of things, being brave. And I'd screw up, but I'd play it kind of slow in one part. And I, I really started becoming very familiar with how that piano reacted to how I touched it. And it it suddenly became something that wasn't just how my hands moved, but the, the this feeling, and I've tried to explain this to people before without sounding like a lunatic, but um, it was an upright piano, and there's this feeling I felt in my chest. And if I can feel that feeling, and I know how that piano is moving and how it's shaking and how it's reverberating, I, I, I got that. I know what sound I want to make. I can get kind of artsy with it. This is this is me speaking years down the road. But at that time, that that's where it was birthed. I remember that was a that piece was integral for me. But um I still wasn't really cool about performing. One day I was playing, practicing, and I was killing the song. And I I tried something, and and I'm going to get semi-technical here. Not really, but I know a lot of you may not be musicians. Just stick with me. I'm not going to lose you here. But for those of you that play, you know, one day I was just taking a look at the way the, the keys lay out. Two and the three, two and three, two and three with the black keys, and where middle C was. But that just means there's a whole bunch of Cs up and down the keyboard. You know, what if I switched my hands? Now, when I say switched my hands, I wasn't playing different parts. I just crossed my hands. And played what was the melody down lower and what was the bass up higher just to make a different sound. And I, I did that, and it was fun, and it was kind of neat. And I started playing, and I did it again. And Suddenly I realized that I could go and play one verse normal and switch hands, play one verse in my new way, and then back to uh, normal again at the end of the verse. And, and suddenly I was... I didn't realize it, but I was putting together a performance. Immediately, I was transformed into Jerry Lee Lewis. It was time to light the piano on fire, tell the kid behind me, follow that killer, and saunter off down the aisle of the church saying, if I'm going to hell, I'm going playing the piano, just like old Uncle Jerry Lee would. Uh, uh, but when I went to practice at Bonnie's house, I still just played it the way that I wanted to. The practice before 
the recital on that Sunday, uh, she said something very important to me. And she said, you know, you know the notes and you know the song. The important thing is to not get nervous when you're in front of everybody. And I just looked at her like, well, that's dumb because I am. But I remember her saying that uh, all the work that you do won't be any good if you're nervous. You, you have to want to put on a show for people to enjoy your show. And so that's what these recitals are for. Your first one's not going to be easy. It's going to be nerve-wracking. But you have to learn that wanting to go perform is the most important step in preparing to go play. Because people sense that you're nervous and they become nervous and then you screw up and your screw up is magnified. But confidence and going out there and sitting down that's what you need. Now, Bonnie did not say this to a second grader. But in my mind, that that's that's what I remember. I remember that that truth being instilled in me in that point. Now, even though that's where it was born, was that what happened? I remember sitting in that church and I, I I remember watching the first couple of kids go up and I looked on the sheet and I suddenly realized a couple of things of where I was uh, on this thing. And there's these kids that were, they were a little bit younger than me that were first. And I was like, okay, so these kids will get up there. They're going to kind of mess up a little bit. And then there was a, there was a couple of first graders and I realized, oh, we're doing this by age. And then no. No, we're not doing this necessarily by age. These kids that are older than me, wait a minute. The last one is not the oldest. We're in the order of who's just learning and who's the best. And suddenly I saw something. I was not next to last. I was next to next to last. And I looked around, and I saw those kids that got up there first, and they got a little nervous, and they screwed up, but their parents still smiled, and they applauded, and Bonnie put her arm around them and walked them down the, the steps as she welcomed up the next one in, in a very comforting way. And I, I realized something, that in, in my panic and my worry, I was missing out on opportunity. Oh, in front of me, sitting up. In the middle of that church was my key to being better than everybody else in the room. And suddenly I wished I had I had practiced a different song. Suddenly I wished I had, I had learned that second song like Bonnie said. Suddenly I wanted to be the one that was billed last. It all came on me. Now let me tell you something. I, I, I know enough about myself. I've lived with myself all my life. And I, I know that that competitiveness has always been with me. But remember, before all that was this nervous Nelly who just wanted everything to be perfect before he got up there. Now it wasn't good enough. Now I didn't want to be perfect. I just wanted to be more entertaining. And I'm going to tell you this. 
I see the same thing in my nine-year-old daughter. <laughs> um, I made a decision. I looked out into the audience as the kid before me was playing, and I was listening to her song, and I realized that I had an opportunity because she made a mistake. I needed to kill my song. I needed to be great. I needed to surprise Bonnie. And that means, oh yes, I had to cross my hands and then uncross them back to show everybody that this kid means business at his first recital. So I did. And I actually pulled it off. And Bonnie was just over there laughing. And she was surprised. She gave me a big hug. Everybody in the audience thought I did something magical. Again, those of you that are musicians, I wasn't playing the left hand with my right. I was just playing my right hand down there. It just looked really cool. It's kind of like if y'all have seen Alicia Keys a couple of years ago had some deal where she's got like two baby grand pianos and she's sitting in the middle of them. And of course, she has a shirt that's split open right down the middle. And she's playing one piano with one hand and the other piano with the other. It's she's not playing anything different. She's just doing it on different pianos, playing right hand here, left hand here. Left hand still plays the same thing, but it just looks cool, right? That's what happened. Mom and dad were shocked. I'm sure they were like, Bonnie, we have to pay you double. I'm sure they did. But um, it paid off. Kid played after me, screwed up. I looked even better. Last kid was fantastic. So I yeah, I came in second place at this. But suddenly, every time I had a recital, that became the thing. The performance. Now, what's interesting is that it really is a lesson in being nervous, right? Because if if I'd allowed my nervousness to get the best of me, I wouldn't have had as much fun. I mean, there's no cash involved. There's no bragging rights. When we left there, nobody, oh, they all knew who was the best. Well, I mean, just kidding. Kind of. It, it, but it is about that performance. It's about entertaining people. It's about, hey, you come to hear a recital that I'm playing at, I, I want you to have had some fun while you're here. I don't want you to sit there thinking, oh, my gosh, here's another one. I'd like to give you something that you can walk away with and talk about. It's what all of us do in music now. I mean, hell, if you're someone, maybe maybe not, maybe, maybe not. I don't go to open mics that often. If I've done them, it hasn't been to try out a new song. Nope, it's to give somebody something to talk about when I walk away. Not because my ego is demanding it, my ego likes it. It's not that. It is that when we're entertaining people, I want you to be entertained. And man, I would have never learned that nor been okay with it if that lady hadn't told me, Chad, it's about being confident in what you're doing because you can't do the rest of it, truthfully, unless you can keep your wits about you. It still is not the greatest basketball game 
I watched. The greatest basketball game I ever saw was in the 1998 to 1999 season for the College of Charleston men's basketball team. We were we were up in Davidson. We were playing in Davidson. We were down about 16, 17 points with two minutes left to go. And we came back and won. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever watched. In, a, in an auditorium where a bunch of rich kids were letting us have it. And they were trying to get in our heads. And I watched that team persevere and do something amazing. But before that, the year before... We were uh, we were up at a round robin tournament in Charlotte, North Carolina. Back at this back at this time, John Coach John Cress, uh, the College of Charleston men's basketball team, had a reputation. He knocked off uh, University of Tennessee when they were, um, I think, number nine. Why am I thinking seven? Number seven in the nation. Uh, we had beaten uh, UMass. We were supposed to lose to UMass. The year before in the in the NCAA tournament in Memphis, and we beat them, and we beat them pretty dang good. Lost to Arizona by four points, and Arizona got calls down the stretch. Arizona went on to win the national championship that year. That was for you sports fans, Mike Bibby and all those guys. Um, but one of the problems we had in in our state is we had the University of South Carolina, BJ Mackey, and those guys were playing them. And Clemson University that played in the ACC with Duke, North Carolina, NC State, Wake Forest, and all that. And neither one of those schools wanted to play against us because if we beat them, it destroyed them. We were always unranked. If they beat us, it didn't do them any good. I I can understand that. We took no offense to it, but we didn't let them know that. Whenever we saw those players out somewhere, whenever we were somewhere else, we always gave them hell until finally – Someone decided that they would play against us in a round-robin round robin tournament because, because USC got a chance to play against North Carolina. We go out and play against the University of South Carolina the first night, and you could tell we knew we, knew we were playing against North Carolina the next night. North Carolina was number three in the nation. And we're out there playing against the University of South Carolina, and we just looked bad. We made uh, the mistakes that we shouldn't make. Guys were out there making bad passes. It was it was just it was it was a rough time. I remember coach in the locker room just letting them have it. Just I mean, God Almighty. He did not let up about that at all. You see, the way that coach positioned this team was that they were professionals. You weren't a college student, you were a professional. And every moment that you were on that floor and everything that you did and every pass and every thought and every shot, everything you did, you were a professional. And he had those guys believe in it. Hell, I wouldn't even say that. He he made them that. There's some exceptional guys on that team. They were just, it was phenomenal. I I I still, and I know I was closer to it. But I don't know that I've seen something like that. You got you get teams that have a couple of phenomenal players on it that are surrounded by a good supporting cast. I, I don't know. This this team was different. And I remember we got out there and we got waxed by the University of South Carolina and we were mad. And we were mad because we had talked a lot of junk. And we had the game against number three 
team in the nation the next night. And we knew, we knew that if we were going to do anything, we had to believe we were going to do something. And I remember the guys sitting around the hotel room that night. We were all sitting around doing the things that we do, but not partying as hard as we used to. And there was kind of a conversation about about what needed to be done. Then we blew off steam and everybody got ready for shoot around the next day and it was back it was back to back to normal. It wasn't a team that had it had lost the day before. It was a team that believed they were going to win the night before. Everything at shoot around was back like it normally was. Very professional. Passes were tight. Everybody was there on time. Shut up and listened whenever coach talked. Got into it. Fought hard. Picked each other up. Gave each other a couple of pointers. Went and hit the showers. It was a fun game. It was an interesting game. It was it was tight all the way through. University of North Carolina, somewhere about midway through the second half, I think thought that they had had it, and we ended up coming back a little bit more. Every time they tried to break away, we, we just wouldn't let them get away too far. And then there was a play. Now, I, I, I've, I don't know that I've ever put this on broadcast. <laughs> so I, don't, I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings if any of the boys are listening to this. But, but uh, let me tell you what was supposed to happen. We had the ball on an inbound, and we were down um, by two points. We uh, we needed a two to win. Cedric, who is our basically our power forward, but this is before our, our big time um, center could play, Mr. Jody Lumpkin, because he was still redshirted that year because of a transfer. We 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 had to have Cedric, who was kind of undersized for playing center bring the ball up on the right wing. And and they had him bring him up because they knew that he wasn't going to shoot a three-point shot from there. Danny Johnson was supposed to split down the middle. Pass was supposed to go to either him or Mel at the top of the key, whichever one was open. Shot was supposed to easily go in the basket. If not, he would have been down low where the guys would have easily fouled him. And Jamel and Danny, who are two phenomenal three point uh, free-throw shooters, would have easily tied it, and probably very easily won it, as long as they didn't get too nervous. Said was bringing the ball down and suddenly felt a rush of confidence. And because he had been given the space, because no one thought that he was going to shoot a three, he stopped and pulled up a three. Now, that three did not go in. And uh, it was, I understand why Sed took the shot. He would have been the big hero as well. That was a lot. And it took a lot of confidence to make that shot. But he didn't make it. As a matter of fact, when he let it go, you knew he wasn't going to make it. But down at the top of the key, Danny Johnson saw that that ball was going to come off that backboard. And he fought his way over to the right. Probably pushed the guy a little bit. Jumped up. Grabbed that ball. Had a guy hanging off the back of him and another guy jumping up to block it. Put that ball up as quickly as he could on the rebound. And it went in. Buzzer went off. We had won the game. 
one point over the University of North Carolina, number three in the nation, against an unranked College of Charleston men's basketball team in their own state. We partied our asses off that night. And we got back to the port and we didn't stop partying for a week. If Danny had lost his cool, if Danny hadn't been thinking clearly, every little bit of what Danny had to do to make that shot wouldn't have come together in the way that it needed to. The, the small move to the left to get the defender to think he was going that way, back to the right, moving forward, up, pressing against the guy in front of him, and then jumping up in a falling back motion because of where he knew that defender was. With the guy coming over the top of his back, which, by the way, should have been called as a foul, and the, fir- and the guy in front of him jumping up, hand completely in his face, but Danny had already set the shot, and Danny believed in himself. Danny was right. Nothing against Cedric. In some ways, with the way that Danny was covered, it was the shot to take. He didn't make the right decision or didn't make the shot. But it was the fact that we didn't panic because the night before, when we did, you could tell. That night, that team didn't make a bad pass. Everything was crisp and clear and to the right place. I'm not saying we hit 100% of our shots, but none of them were bad. You could tell they were focused. Their minds were where they were supposed to be. For as long as I live, I will never, ever forget my grandfather's. They were too, uh, they were tough. Probably tougher than they should have been. But they grew up in a different era. When you're one of 16 kids, 18 kids, and one of 12 kids, and you go out to work in the farm, And then you go off to work in somebody else's because the family is just trying to get by. You you come up in a different way. When you do it in South Carolina, the post-Reconstruction era, and and you've got all this stuff going on, and the world is changing left and right, and we're still trying to figure each other out, and then the world goes to war, and then the world goes to war again. Life isn't as easy as we have it today. And both of them had their vices. Both of them made bad decisions, but they're both, to me, well, They were two of the most important figures of my entire life. Both of them served in the military during World War II. Um, My my dad's dad in the Navy, uh, my step-grandfather, my mom's stepdad 
in uh, in the Army. He's an Army Corps of Engineers. His name is Bud, and I've talked about Bud before, but I'll tell you, uh, Bud, Bud's got a, uh, an interesting thing about him. Um, I went over to Normandy back in 2005, and before I went, I got I got a chance to do something really neat. I went and sat down with my grandfather, and I just told him, hey, I'm going over there. Um, you know, I don't, you've never talked to me about it before. You don't have to, if you don't want to, I'm not, I'm not trying to pull it out of you, but, um, I'd love to hear if you've got anything you want to share with me before we go. He talked for about an hour and a half to two hours. It is still to this day, the most amazing night that I ever spent with my grandfather. The stories that I heard and the things that he said, and then later, uh, years later, I got, uh, I was given as a gift uh, from some guys in his unit, the unclassified documents, the documents that had been declassified from his group. And I can actually um, attest to the stories that he told me. Uh, they were a very interesting group. They landed D3 at Normandy. Uh, my grandfather was was caught up in a lot of uh, different fights. If you're a war historian, he was one of the original bastards of Baston. They were the Army Corps of Engineers that was sent out that gave their in, uh, their weapons to Easy Company as they went in uh, because of how they gotten shelled the whole time. He lost. He gotten reconnected with his brother, in the Battle of the Bulge, and and lost him there. Was there as he passed, and was getting ready to board a ship to go to Japan when they called the war off. My grandfather saw a lot of amazing things and had some incredible stories but one one always sticks with me now this story wasn't written up in his documents i've heard it from kind of from him and really from a couple of other places i'm not quite sure exactly how this went but i will tell you that when he was in baston if you know anything about that the ground was frozen you couldn't dig in too far they started getting shelled nobody was shooting at them but the trees were exploding above them and uh, it was very hard because they were caught out in the middle of a big field. He tried to get back and couldn't. The guy beside him had been hurt really bad, and then he realized he wasn't just hurt bad. He was, like, only half there. Another guy was trying to run back to his foxhole, and he was killed. And Bud realized that he was in a bad place. Young man been a tobacco farmer or worked in tobacco fields and cotton fields working just trying to support his family been sent halfway around the world in a world that back then was about 20 times the size of the one today found himself in the middle of a field in france it was getting absolutely destroyed he saw his group fall back. He couldn't get back to him. He got disoriented and didn't know what to do. Wasn't quite sure how he was going to get out of this, and it started getting worse. And he realized, because of the dead bodies draped around him, that he was probably going to join them soon. And he did what probably a lot of people do in a situation like that. He prayed. But he did something different. You see, he didn't, he didn't bargain for anything. He didn't promise 
the Lord that if you get me out of here, I'm going to go to church every Sunday and I'm going to do this and that. I'm going to teach Sunday school every single Sunday. This is what I'll do. God, just get me out of here. He, he didn't do that. He prayed for the guys that were killed. And then he prayed that God would keep him brave. That he would keep him patient. That he would keep him from panicking any more than he already was. So that his head could be clear and he could get out of there. And he said that if he did that, that he would never doubt again for the rest of his life, knowing that the man upstairs was in control. Now, I, I'm not a big believer in predestination. I, 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 that's not something that I, I jive with, but I understand why people like that, and I understand where people find comfort in that. And Bud obviously didn't make it out of that foxhole. The story of how he made it back out of that and to the line is a whole nother incredible story. It's, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever heard. But one of the things I can tell you is this. My grandfather never doubted anything the rest of his life. If he did, I never saw it. He honest to God every single day, anytime something would be going crazy, believed it was going to be okay. He did he did go back and teach Sunday school for a long time. I will say he did do that. But but he he really he had this sense about him that I've never seen out of anybody else in my entire life, including my father. That man had a belief. This this is a guy. This is a guy who after this saw his brother die in the battle of the bulge. This is a guy who went home to see his wife die of breast cancer. It's not like he was without bad times. He just believed that everything was going to be okay. And, and, and what he learned, what he learned was that as long as he kept his head about him, he was going to find a way out. Getting nervous and panicky was the certain way to failure. That man lived to be 79, no, Papa was 79. He was 82, I believe, when he passed, right before Brim was born. God Almighty, I mean within weeks. Ugh. There's, there's something important in all of those stories. Why do I share this with you? Here's why. Right, let me let me wrap it up this way. When I was in high school, I came across this book that Douglas Adams wrote. It's a very satirical book. Most people know it. It's called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It is a book that, uh, that has impacted, uh, if not you, then someone you know. Again, it was, a, it was a satire, but there was a lot about it that made you really look at yourself. Premise of the story is a man lives on the planet, finds out the planet's getting ready to get blown up, and finds himself trekking through the universe as a hitchhiker on spaceships. There's a guide that everybody in the universe has access to, and it is simply called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But on it, 
are two very important words. Two of the most important words in the entire series of novels. The words that Im- that are Im- Im- emblazed upon this book that has the answers to everything is simply don't panic. I understand that things like this coronavirus can really scare a lot of people, and it should. I work with the elderly population. I work in senior health I have for over 10 years. And for those of you who may be new, my real job outside of this is working with hospice. One of the things that we don't do in hospice that people have a hard time understanding is we don't try to speed up death anywhere. While we may not be fully on sustaining life through artificial means, we're not trying to get you to die faster. That's a misnomer that you shouldn't have. And there's a show about that. You can go back and check. I think it's the one entitled It's Time We Talk About Work. If you're interested in hospice, I actually think it's a pretty good one. But those folks that I work with are very susceptible to this, to colds, to the flu, to anything that may be out there amongst the masses. And so we we watch what we do. We have very particular um, guidelines that we go by to make sure that we're keeping our folks happy, healthy, and with us as long as we can. And it can be pretty scary for people in that population. I've also had a child before. And I remember what it's like when those little things first enter the world and everything that's out there is attaching itself to it, trying to make it sick. Yes, I do understand how that works. I also have worked not only in hospice and senior health, but healthcare for over 20 years, especially in, in some curative realms, working with... Uh, Groups throughout the uh, the country that work on medicine and stuff like that. I know how studies are generated. I know how they're put out there. I, I know where to go to find information. I'm pretty good with that stuff. Now, I'm not going to come on here and, and tell you that I know how long this coronavirus is going to last. No, I'm not here to do that. Oh, I've got my thoughts on it. But I, I'm not here to share that with you. I'm here to talk about how we handle things. I think we've got a, I think we have a hard time for a couple of reasons. I think um, coming from the generation of your TV is lying to you, uh, who believes that as the internet has come in and brought us a whole nother thing, it's given us great information and helps us be prepared, which this shows us that we're not. <laughs> I mean, it, it does. It shows us that we're not prepared. Uh, It also allows for us to escalate things to a level that we shouldn't. I'm going to say a couple of things that might hurt a few people's feelings. And if it does, please don't think that I'm making fun of anybody. But I I do want to say a couple of things. It wasn't that long ago that we killed uh, the United States, not like us here at Local Bar Media, but uh, the United States uh, bombed and killed uh, a leader of a major terrorist organization in the Middle East, and what you heard is this is going to be, be the beginning of World War III. Somehow I survived that draft. It is not. It was not World War III. It's okay to be worried about stuff, but there's no reason to jump 
to the far deep end of, 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 of everything just because something happens that makes you nervous. It keeps you from making good decisions. Same kind of thing happened with our, 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 our climate crisis that we have. We've got to make some changes. But when people get on television and tell you we've got 8 to 10 years, what was it, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, Al Gore told us we had 10 years. There's no reason to do that. We do need to make changes, but when you jump to that kind of level, you do two things. You you cause panic where people don't make good decisions, and you cause people to doubt you because, well, because that's kind of, that's you're overdoing it. I'll give you. I, I I tell you what. I'll throw out. I'll throw out a little bit of opinion here. This coronavirus has already been in your neighborhoods. It's already been there. You're waiting for it. You're hoping it doesn't come through your neighborhood. It's already been there. This isn't something that attacks your body and immediately kills you. There are people that have it. There are people that have had it that they thought they just had some cold or some virus. There's some people that have had it and they have not gone somewhere in order to get anything for it. There are people that have had it. And they've just passed right through it and they've walked right through it. It has been around you. It's just, it's, it's just a, it's, I I think it's a fact. It's the, the, the data is there. It's been around you. You just didn't know it. The people that have had it, of all the people that have had it so far, half of them continue to get over it. That number keeps going until it gets to the point that everybody gets over it. There have been a lot of people that have passed away. The people that have been passed away, according to Johns Hopkins, have been somewhere around the median age of 82. Average age of 82. Sorry. And then we look at what's going on with Italy. It is one of the oldest populations we have on the planet, if you don't know. In a very saturated population-wise area. And for those of you that are really wanting socialized medicine, it's something that really kind of goes to show. Nothing against those people over there working hard. I just, I just, I probably shouldn't have said that, but it's true. There's, there's, there's a lot that's going on that we need to understand. We should be prepared for things. What, what is this thing showed us that that viruses can spread very quickly throughout the entire world, and that the entire world is not ready to deal with something like that. So we need to do a better job. But this. This pandemic of a virus that is able to spread very quickly is not the zombie apocalypse. Think about if we had the flu, but you didn't have Tamiflu or any vaccines. We're comparing it to the flu, and we have that. Imagine what the flu would do if we didn't have anything. We will have a vaccine to this. We will have a pill that helps you get over it. It will still come around every year like every other virus and bacteria seems to do, at least the seasonal ones. And next time we'll have something for it. But we're panicking. I'm okay because it's a respiratory the way that it's spread is respiratory of us trying to watch what happens as far as travel and keeping people together. I, I, I get all that. That makes sense to me. I, I think it's much, but I, but I understand it. But when people are going to Costco and punching each other out for toilet paper, when we're refusing to go out and do anything, when we when we're so scared that we start to hurt not only ourselves and the relationships around us, but even our own economy. I'm not saying it's anybody's responsibility, 
But I'm saying go around and telling everybody to shut everything down is not exactly what we need to do because, because, because this is not that pandemic. Now, what we've learned is we're not ready for that pandemic that causes us to have to deal with a virus that spreads and does it, it, like mass killings. We, we are not ready for that. We got to get better. That's what we learned from this one. I hope I hope we take that lesson and we learn from it, but I worry that we won't. Because we'll take this thing because we're panicking and we won't process it the right way. It's it's fine to be prepared. It's fine to be a little nervous about things. I, I get that. But like me with the piano, you're, you're not going to find the thing you need to find to really make a difference out this and make life better for you tomorrow. You're not going to learn the lesson. When you're in the middle of it, you're not going to make the right decisions to care for you and the people around you, just like in that basketball game. If you're panicking. And how in the world, how in the world, are you going to not only get through it, but contribute to the group to make sure it doesn't happen again if your answer is to just freak the hell out when something bad happens? I, I, we, we live in the water here in this family. We love the ocean. We are an ocean family. We love it. Both of my daughters have been able to swim, and they swim very well, and they've been able to do it from a young age. We have some beaches around here which actually do pretty well for some mild surfing, not like what you guys have on the West Coast, but but we have some. But one of the things we certainly have because of the shape of our, our geography around here is some really, 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 really strong currents. And my daughters know there's two rules in the ocean. Number one, it's the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Don't panic. Number two, do not fight the water because the water always wins. Let the current take you where it wants to take you. Call for help. Raise your hand. They know the the steps of what to do. When bad things happen and things are scary that are different than what we've ever seen before, it doesn't change how we need to approach them. I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you a story. This is my ex-wife's birthday yesterday. I I, I probably shouldn't attribute this to her, but let me just be honest with you folks. I remember one time uh, when we were having a fight a long time ago. One of the things that I, this I'll I'll never forget this. She talked about how she can deal with some problems, but there are some problems if she ever comes across, she is not going to deal with them. Well, the hell is that? You don't get to choose your problems. You don't you don't walk into a marriage or anything in your life and say, "Well, I'm I'm not no 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 I'm not signing up for these problems. I'm I'm only going to sign up for these over here." When, when life throws its crap at you, and it will, when there are other things that happen to us, and it will, just because it's something you haven't ever seen before doesn't mean you need to freak the hell out. Don't, I, I, look, look, all right, so let's go back to September 11th. When that happened, none of us saw it coming. 
We didn't understand it. We didn't believe it. We could keep watching the images on TV, but we couldn't process it. And we panicked a little bit. Sure. But what we did as a country, and I I will contend, there was a lot that we did as a group at that time. And one of the things that we did is while we were nervous, we, we took a step, we took a breath, we looked to our neighbors, we looked to the people we had differences with, and we set everything aside and said, what do we need to do to make sure we're okay? And from there, we started setting up a couple of things. We made some bad decisions, made some good ones, but we moved forward. It was something we had never seen. Something that had never happened to us. And we did a pretty dang good job with it. And now this comes through and the world doesn't know how to act. Because we're scared and it's different. I get it. But it doesn't mean that freaking out is suddenly going to be the answer to anything. It's not. Look. When these things happen, don't panic. Keep your head about you. Understand there are things out of your control that you're not going to be able to lasso and make them go where you want them to. But it doesn't mean the world has come to an end. By panicking and going over the top, you allow for the damage that would be there for something worse to in some ways happen to you and the people around you. And you do not add anything to the situation. You only take away from it. Look, I, I don't want to preach too much here, and I, and I, I, I don't want to go so far as, as if to say that I, I'm, I expect you to be naive about this thing. I mean, take precautions. If you've got immune disorders, don't, don't go around or amongst crowds. If you deal with folks in hospitals, try not to go if you don't, if you don't have to. If you're dealing with elderly folks, check on them, but if you don't have to go in, be that close to them for a couple of weeks, yeah, be smart about it. All the precautions were taken. Yeah, I think it's a bit much. I, I honestly do. Because I, what I think it's doing is I think there's a part where you go from being protective and, and cautious to inciting panic. And I, I think that's what we've done. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe all the hospital beds will be in the world. This is why I, I read this. The other, this was going around two days ago. All the hospital beds in the world will be filled May 8th. I'll tell you this. A lot of hospital beds will be filled this next weekend because people are panicking and everything they get is going to make them rush to the ER. And say a prayer for my brother-in-law and everybody else who works in the hospital because they're going to be triaging people that are really probably okay because we're going to incite this panic. But there are going to be some people that need some help, and I hope they get it, and I hope we're watching out for them, and I hope we're supporting them, and I hope what we do is we take this lesson, we look into the future about what we need to do when something starts up and how we can do things better, not only as a country, but in our own community, in our neighborhoods, and in our own home. There's nothing wrong with that. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean you're panicking. That means you're being smart. That means you're learning a lesson. That means you're moving forward with it.
maybe in some cases it's too late. The panic's already there, and we're just going to do with it what we want. That's fine. That's fine. But if I've learned anything from this, and, and, I, and I hope you do too, be prepared. Do what you need to, but panicking will never help you. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's just easy for me because of Bud. Because I saw it with my own two eyes and lived it with my own life. That there are people that when they're needed, they can stand up and make a difference. They can find the answers and they know the way out. And if they don't, they're the people that will go through it with you. Stand there to make sure everybody around them is doing the best they can. It's not just my grandfather. I've had a few people in my life that I know are that way. And that's the one common ground they have. That that Hitchhiker's Guide Bible verse, you know, Douglas 42, 42, don't panic. That may be the most important thing we can learn out of any of this. God, God, I hope, I hope this is a lesson we learn. Thanks for stopping by the bar. We've picked up your tab, but if you'd like to leave the best bartenders you know a tip, head over to patreon.com forward slash local bar and support the show. Any support is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to drop us a line, send your emails to chad at localbarmedia.com. Thanks for coming in. See you next week. Yes, we will see you next week. Yes, we will. We'll be back. I promise. Lord willing, in the creek don't rise and nobody cancels this program. Hopefully, we'll see you in Park Circle this weekend. Maybe at Foxfield next. Until then... Take care, everybody. This podcast is part of a local bar media. For this and other shows, visit localbarmedia.com.